Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. One of the main reasons I launched this podcast was to help influence a major change in workplace leadership. My hope all along is that listeners would hear new and enlightened ideas about leading people and then adopt them into their own management practices. And while I'm pleased to say that we now have an audience in 151 countries and experienced a 35% spike in podcast downloads just last month, I've long wondered how a massive change revolution occurs. In other words, what has to happen for wide and deep leadership change to occur? So I hope this question intrigues you because as leaders, we are routinely challenged to change the beliefs and behaviors of other people. And our success in making this happen often plays a huge role in determining the trajectory and future of our careers. My guest today is Damon Sentola, who is a professor of communication, sociology, and engineering at the University of Pennsylvania. And he's the author of the new bestseller called Change, How to Make Big Things Happen. Wharton professor Adam Grant says, it's the most important book on the science of social influence since Robert Caldini's great book, Influence. One of Damon's big ideas is that change doesn't really occur the way we've always believed, like a virus. We've long thought that after one person heard a new idea, they'd pass it on to someone else and inevitably the new process system or philosophy would get spread throughout a population or an organization, for example. But to create real change, we have to do more than spread information. We must gain acceptance for the new idea sufficient for people to put them into use. And for anyone who's ever tried to get another person to see the world from a different perspective or change the way they do something, you know that human resistance, fear, and the status quo often get in the way. So how can individual managers shape new behavior within their teams? How do we successfully launch a new innovation before it gets squashed and killed? And how can we create cultural change within an organization that really sticks? We're about to answer these important questions and much more. And let me welcome you to the podcast, Damon Sentola. Thank you, Mark. Well, big picture, your book explains why some innovations and movements take hold and spread while others wither and fade away. And one of your main ideas is that social media networks hold great power in guiding how we all respond. So if I'm a leader listening in, which is our audience, tell me why your book and research are important to my, our ability to successfully introduce change within my team and organization, and any other reasons why this knowledge can help me succeed. Well, the first thing to understand is that this is a brand new science. So we've never really had the ability to study how populations or organizations behave. Historically, what we do is we study people one at a time, and then we try to make an inference about what a group will do or what a political party will do or what an organization will do by looking at a bunch of different people individually. And kind of missing piece that scientists have complained about for 30 or 40 years is that when people start to interact, all of a sudden everything changes. That the way that an individual behaves is very, very different when they're interacting. And it's not just a group, it's also the structure of that group. And how can we ever know what interventions and what features of the group structure are going to make a difference for, you know, increasing productivity or increasing, you know, polarization and discontent? And so that's the kind of thing that people have just speculated about for decades. And, you know, serious people in the top journals in the world. And we've never had a way of studying it. And so this is when when I was sort of getting started in this area about a decade and a half ago. 
I was really troubled by, by the fact that we had so many theories and no actual empirical testimony. And so what I spent a lot of time doing was developing my own new theory and then also a new, a new way of testing these ideas. And none of this would have been possible at all, really, without the internet and without the kind of communication networks that we have over social media. Because for the first time, we can do experiments. And this whole sort of mode of experimental sociology has led us to sort of understand the dynamics of organizations, the dynamics of collectives in a way that's just sort of mind-blowing. We can really do science now in the same way that we do biology and physics. We can study the science of society. And so this has led to a series of results, and this is why I wrote the book, that really overturn most of what we've thought for the last century about how change processes work. And it turns out that what we tend to see in a change process is, you know, a kind of sequence of events, and then we make an inference about what caused that sequence of events. And it turns out that our inferences are almost always wrong. And so what I've been able to do is to study this change process causally. And say, well, if I were to change this feature, would it actually make a difference? If I were to change that feature, would it make a difference? And identify like what features of the kind of social interaction process, of the leadership process, of the information spreading process actually make a difference for people adopting new norms, for people changing their work habits, for people adopting new technologies and so forth. And as I'm sure we'll talk about in this interview, the, the big changes overturn most of our conceptions about how things spread, which traditionally we think everything spreads like a virus, and also who are the important people. And typically we think like, you know, influencers and highly connected people are the most important people. And the reasons ultimately why this science has become so important is because the way that when we talk about organizational change, the way we think about it is always based on this sort of model from epidemiology which is our like baseline default way of thinking about spreading because it's the only really part of the science we have any really good data on. So we've made, made this inference that the science we've done on diseases can help us understand everything else. And that turns out to be really wrong. So this is a new science. So are you all alone doing this? Oh, no. And <laughs> if, if, I don't imagine that you are, but I really want to drill down into is before I do talk to you about the things that you just mentioned, including the virus and influencers, is what's your methodology? Like, how did you figure this out? When I initially was coming out of my PhD, I was developing, like, you know, people generations before me, new theoretical models. And I was studying things like, the civil rights movement and technology diffusion during the tech bubble in 2000 and trying to sort of understand what the dynamics were of how people influence people and what the change process looked like. And one of the things I started noticing was that the data weren't matching up with our, our best theories, but there was no explanation. There was no way to explain it. It was just like there were these anomalies. And so I developed a model that could explain why things might spread in a way that was really counterintuitive and not at all like a virus, but in this a different way. And then what those things were, and those things really were like behaviors and behaviors that were costly or difficult or unfamiliar with spread in this sort of new way. And as I came out of my PhD with that new result, it was a somewhat celebrated result because it kind of changed the way people talked and, and thought about the issues of, of social change and about organizational change. And then I kept looking for a place to test it. And there literally was no one in the world who had <laughs> answered the question, how would you test this theory? Wow. And I was really deeply troubled by that. And it became almost a crisis for me personally. I was like, well, I don't understand how I'm supposed to build a career over the next 40 years 
studying something that can't be tested, you know, empirically. And I think there was this real disconnect between the sciences in the sense that I was doing a PhD between basically physics and sociology. And in sociology, a lot of the very smart people who had worked in these problems had speculated about how we might collect data to test some of their theories, which I might use to test my theory, but no one had actually found any solutions. And they were frustrated. Even back to the 70s and 80s, there was this frustration. And then I was reading all these papers in my physics classes that were, you know, every single paper was a model and data and a model and data. And so I was being trained to think that way. It wasn't the sort of the way of doing sociology at the time. And so the onus really fell upon me to like figure out a way of collecting some rigorous data. And I wanted to do something that was ultimately causal, which meant I wanted to show that if I were to change the network in a very specific way, that it would have these like direct predictable effects on the behavior that people would exhibit. And I got a, a fellowship at Harvard and it's been a couple of years and they gave me like full funding. And, I, and all I did was like think about how to build a study and the internet was coming online. People were starting to participate in online communities and I sort of had the epiphany that I could build an online community dedicated to studying this kind of social change process and make it a real thing in the sense that it would be a commercial product, it would be a live community, there'd be thousands of people who are just there to be there because they enjoyed it. But nevertheless, in the background, it would be sort of designed as an experiment. And this was this sort of method that I invented as, as a way of solving this problem of how to test this theory. And then, of course, for me, it's ballooned into this whole sort of major research enterprise. And I've used it to test four or five different new theories of you know, how organizations change and how people make decisions when they're in these different network contexts. So I want to dig into that. One of the things that I'm hearing you say that always impresses me is the idea of marrying two different disciplines to come out with a third understanding. So you've taken sociology and physics, which is not a normal combination for most of us, <laughs> even studying one of them. And so you've brought all this together. And so the very beginning of your book, you say that you know we've all heard that change spreads like a virus, like one person gets infected and then they pass it on to others and then the contagion spreads to the population. But what you said is that you've discovered that to create real change, it's not just information that needs to spread. So we just can't pass out the word that, hey, everybody, this is what we're going to be doing now. You have to change people's beliefs and behaviors, and that's a whole lot harder to do. So you've created this language, complex contagion, and why it's so hard to convince someone that a new idea or behavior is in their best interest to adopt it. So tell us about that. Yeah, so the big distinction came from thinking about how the traditional model of spreading worked and when it was successful. And it was pretty successful for describing viruses like the novel coronavirus and also for describing information. So people heard about the virus because information about the virus went viral. There are broadcast media sources. And then also it was kind of word of mouth networks. And so you've got this kind of social phenomenon, which is information spreading. And it seems to behave in a similar way as this biological phenomenon, which is, you know, viral spreading. And so it seems to make sense that you would infer that just about everything spreads that way. And there was you know, this very famous theory called the strength of weak ties that I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment that describe the network links that allow these kinds of spreading processes to work. But to think about it intuitively, you can say, well, if someone is in an infected part of the world, you know, like Wuhan, China, and they get on an airplane and they land in New York, if that person is infected, then they carry that infection on the plane and then to New York. And so even though it's just one person 
traveling across continents, they can nevertheless be this transmission vehicle for the disease to jump across continents and then spread out through New York. And then someone who gets on a plane in New York and lands in LA, then if they're infected, they bring the disease to LA and so forth. And so we have this idea that all it really takes is like one link to like spread this kind of contagion uh, across the world. That's what I refer to as a simple contagion because one contact or one transmission is sufficient. And what's different about social change is that with disease, just exposure is sufficient for transmission. So if you come into contact with someone with novel coronavirus and you're talking face-to-face without a face mask, within a short period of time, the transmission probability goes to one. (laughs) You're probably going to get infected. And that's not the case for, you know, hearing about a new political candidate or, you know, making a decision to change your your diet or making a decision to, like, move your kids to a different school. Like, anything that's a, a decision that's potentially risky, that's costly, you need to think about it. And you're interested not just in what one person thinks, but in what the people you know and trust think and the people around you. And so you start to look at your broader social network. And this led me to the sort of concept of a complex contagion. And this is when I started really looking through, even before I started developing my own studies, looking through past studies. And I realized that when we look at like the spread of the civil rights movement, we look at the spread of historical changes like the protests of the Berlin Wall, but also we look at the spread of innovations like Skype, and we look at the spread of so many different technologies, innovations, public health changes, social movements, almost all of them, if they involved any cost or risk or they were unfamiliar at all, you know, involved people sort of getting confirmation from the people around them, not just being exposed to it. And so this sort of notion of a complex contagion turns out to change pretty much everything we know about how networks operate and how spreading processes work. Well, I don't want to get ahead of myself because I'm excited to ask you about this audience. We're part of a movement, if you will. We're trying to say that the way we traditionally managed is failing and we want to embrace a more caring and supportive focus on people in the belief that that's going to drive greater performance and engagement and loyalty. And we know that that's true, but we also know that the word heart is this polarizing language that makes people think it's soft and you're not going to get performance. And so as we talk, I'm, I'm curious about how do you get people to reinforce one another in a way that could accelerate all of this? So we're going to come back to this later, but because you mentioned it, I thought this would be a good time to sort of put that out there, that if you know it's not just saying, hey, everybody, but this is the way we want you to lead now going forward, but you have all of this inertia against it, i.e. a hundred year history of managing in a very different way. Yeah. How do you get that complex contagion to occur. Yeah. And there are two ways of thinking about this. One is, you know, you're someone who's part of a network in a change process. And you're someone who takes sort of takes a step back and says, okay, if I can sort of look at the network from a more kind of global perspective and say, this is, you know, the kind of the structure of my organization. And I want to initiate this and kind of, you know, build support for it, get buy-in, kind of grow a critical mass, reach a tipping point. How do I do that? you know, strategically. And so a lot of what I think about is when you take that kind of strategic approach, where to place your effort. And we've been taught for a long time, and again, this comes in many ways from the kind of epidemiological model, that it's about special people. You define the special people who we refer to today as influencers, but that's kind of a social media term. It's 
for the last 60 years, we've talked about opinion leaders and highly connected people. And really the big breakthrough when we shift from simple contagions, which the idea of an influencer really comes from the idea of a super spreader. It's someone who's highly connected who can like infect a lot of people. And that's the same really intuition that sits behind the, the kind of special people notion when it comes to thinking about social change. And that the reason that that sort of idea is wrong is because someone who's highly connected can spread a piece of information really effectively and can unintentionally spread a disease really effectively, but they're also being watched by a lot of people. So when it comes to something that's unfamiliar or that has this potentially uncomfortable aspect to it, like using the word heart in a context where like that's not typically talked about, they have to worry about everyone else's opinion of them, right? They've got a lot of people watching them. And this is the, when you talk about the inertia is what I refer to as countervailing influences. It's basically everyone who's not adopting is basically implicitly saying that they're not going to do it. And so people pay a lot of attention to these implicit signals. I mean, look, you don't become like a highly connected person in an organization by ignoring the social signals around you. You become that person by paying a lot of attention to what people are thinking and, and how they're feeling. And so that's one situation where like people are very sensitive, particularly highly connected people, to how what they're going to do is received. And so what you have to think about really is where are the locations of the network where you can kind of build a kind of cluster of support for a new idea, where people can kind of reinforce it and give each other some confidence and some confirmation that this is something that they want to do, and then allow that to spread. And there's really specific ways of identifying those locations. And so this is when I talk about it. I say, look, there's a difference between the kinds of spreading with simple contagion where you find special people. But for complex contagions, it's not about special people. It's about special places, these special locations in our networks that are really the kind of centers for change. So you didn't use the word pilot in your book, but that's what I took away from it. So you, you just used the language of cluster of support, which, you know, in my mind in reading your book, what I was taking from it, which I thought was absolutely brilliant and actually maps over to some experiences that I've had in my career where you're trying to impress the rest of the organization that a new way that has formed everyone is not only going to be the future, but it's really going to be very successful and, and a win for everybody, right? So that we call pilots. Is that kind of what you're describing? I just wanted to pin it down because it wasn't language that you actually used. Yeah, I use really generic language in, in the book, largely because it's written for a fairly broad audience. It obviously applies pretty directly to organizations, but also applies to people, you know, trying to start a movement, you know, in their church or, you know, any other neighborhood setting. But yeah, the idea of pilot is similar in some respects. The concepts that I use and the way I talk about clusters is also embedded in this sort of network way of approaching it that's useful because it allows us to make, again, predictive claims, right? We can say, look, if you adopt this strategy and sort of target the network this way, then you're going to see more effective growth from these sorts of clusters than you would see using any other strategy. And those are the kinds of things we can test. We can evaluate them computationally and evaluate them experimentally. And that gives a tremendous amount of scientific confidence that like we really know what we're talking about. And then also, you know, mm-hmm. it, it gives a kind of a playbook. And that's how I talk about it in the book. It's this playbook for building an infrastructure for change. And that, to my mind, winds up being one of the most powerful things because 
it's measurable. <laughs> and in many ways, I think that makes it useful. Well, when you talk about innovations in the book, independent of experimentation, clusters of support, pilots, whatever you want to call it, which I think is a great way to influence change in an organization is to get like-minded people together and then let them go experiment and then let the results speak for themselves, particularly if you really believe in what you're doing. So at the same time, there are going to be people outside of that pilot, or let's just assume for a moment that there is no pilot. I mean, you're now planting the idea that this is what we would like for you to do. Hey, managers, this is the behavior that we want you to start to adopt. And we know that people are fearful of being an outlier. Like, as you were saying, they're looking to others to get validation. Like, is this safe to do? And if they don't see enough people doing it, then they don't adapt the behavior and change doesn't happen. So what have you learned are effective ways to remedy this? And how do you help people become more willing to take on that risk? Yeah, so it really has to do with this kind of second part of the problem. So initially, when you kind of want to initiate a change process, you find these locations to target. But what makes those locations special is that they have basically bridges across the infrastructure of an organization. And when we think about bridges, very much like the idea of someone getting on the airplane in Wuhan, China and landing in New York, that's kind of this, this sort of tie across two very different geographic spaces, but also two different social communities. So we think we historically, when we talk about social networks and network bridges, we typically talk about people like brokers, like someone who runs around kind of connecting to lots of people. And that person has ties that like link to a lot of different places. But if that person were to move out of the organization, all those ties also go away. And so that kind of infrastructure that's being created around them really is tied to them personally. And it's not integrated into the rest of the organization. But what makes the kind of locations that I'm talking about special the kind of social clusters for initiating change isn't just that, you know, the people are like-minded and they're all kind of interested in it. Actually, it's slightly different than that in an important way, which is that you want to bring people into the conversation who aren't entirely like-minded, who maybe have some differences of opinion and great kind of a community infrastructure around these sorts of differences, a little bit of diversity in that group, so that those people who have ties to other groups will be able to communicate with some social reinforcement, some sort of coordinated confirmation to other groups that this idea actually has merit. Mm. And then that allows a kind of a jumping process. But instead of jumping across a single tie, it's multiple ties, a kind of you know reinforcing lattice of connections between these groups that then carry it to the new group. And then that group winds up sort of having its sort of internal structure support and confirm this new idea. And you get this kind of leapfrogging from group to group. And the more of these wide bridges, these reinforcing ties across groups that you have, the more effective that initial kind of seed group is in spreading it to other groups. And this is something that we've seen in so many, pretty much every instance of effective change, whether it's within an organization or it's across a nation, has this structure of like groups internally coordinating and then externally coordinating to spread it to a new group. And what's essential here is this kind of relevance within the group, but also some diversity. So there's relevance to other groups. And so like the cleanest way you can talk about it would be in an organizational setting, you may have people who work in engineering and people who work in sales. And if you're going to create a wide bridge between engineering and sales, one person having a conversation isn't enough. 
you need like multiple people engineering to connect with multiple people in sales so that when the engineers start to sort of pioneer this innovation, the people in sales who all know the engineering group can talk to each other and evaluate and say, does this work for us? Does this make sense? Do we agree? Can we coordinate on adopting it? And then that sort of bridge becomes a really effective conduit for knowledge transfer and innovation adoption in the new group. And that's really, when I talk about infrastructure, the key notion is this idea of wide bridges. So just to pin it down, it's absolutely brilliant and a roadmap for how to do this, particularly in the social environment that we're in today, the communication tools that we have. Are you really calling this like a network of early adopters? Is that what that is? So that the idea is that you're embracing people who are part of the movement, want to be a part of the movement with the intention of, and by the way, also from many different areas. So it's not just one geography or one department within an organization etc. But you're really starting off with people that are excited about this. And then the intention and hope is that that group expands. Does that summarize it well? Yeah, it's not just that the group expands, it's that the concept takes on a broader meaning, right? Because it means something to the early adopters who are kind of initiating it, but you have to allow for some flexibility and adaptation as it kind of goes to a new group. And so one of the questions is, as like the sales group, takes on this new idea, this new approach to management or this new innovation or technology, whatever the kind of learning initiative is, how do they kind of fit it into their way of working, which may be very different from the engineers. And that kind of adaptation really requires a kind of social coordination process. And that's where the reinforcing ties across groups helps to give people this sort of flexibility. And then when it spreads from sales over to design, then that process happens again. And to give a kind of non-organizational example that shows just how powerful this can be, this is exactly what happened with Black Lives Matter. It's precisely how the Black Lives Matter movement grew from 2012 and 2013 when like the term existed, but no one used it, to 2014 and the explosion in Ferguson. Over the next several years, these sort of wide bridges were forming across all these different communities for these sort of changing social media connections and also changing coordination strategies with rallies and protests to the point where after George Floyd's death, there was this like worldwide explosion because this infrastructure had been built through these sort of you know network connections that were essentially these wide bridges between lots of diverse communities. So transitioning into something that you mentioned earlier, which is influencers and how they've been devalued in their actual impact. So you said that not only have we greatly exaggerated their impact, relying on influencers in marketing needlessly remains one of the most popular practices in businesses. So when I see Joe Namath pitching senior health care, does he have any relevance to people buying senior health care? Or, you know, when I think about influencers, I think about golfers that are wearing a brand, you know, is there any influence in that? What did you discover? Yeah. So remember that the reason we use these terms is because they are effective for some things. And so the only real conceptual mistake is to generalize from the cases where it works to the cases where it doesn't work. But it turns out the cases where it doesn't work are actually the vast majority of cases and the cases we care about. So the cases where the influencer works are cases where the thing that's spreading is something that's easy, it's familiar, it's just not a big ask of the adopters. So we say, yeah, there's this brand, you're going to buy a golf shirt anyway, which brand of golf shirt are you going to buy? 
And there's not a tremendous amount of brand loyalty with golf shirts. And so buying this brand versus that brand is fine to shift. And an influencer can play a role in kind of putting that in people's heads. And that's a case where just exposure to the brand does a lot of work. But that's a really different story than getting people to change their lifestyle or change their organizational or work practices, which are largely embedded in their immediate contacts that people need to coordinate with every day. And one of the things that we kind of overlook a lot is that within an organization, the vast majority of what you're doing is coordinating with people constantly. And so it's not as if you can personally make a decision based on exposure to a brand or an idea from an influencer. It's that you and everyone around you needs to coordinate with each other on agreeing that this new process or new way of doing things is a good idea and that you're going to work together to implement it and overcome the challenges that it may pose. And so that's where the process of social influence looks really different than the influencer process, where typically what we're looking at is the spread of a simple contagion. So when marketers use celebrities to pitch any product, is that no longer a wise move? In other words, is it just not really all that effective in getting people to make a buying decision? Yeah, so I spend a lot of time in the book kind of explaining this particular point and saying, look, you can do some diagnostic work here and kind of pinpoint whether or not the thing that you're interested in is a simple or complex contagion. So complex contagions have some distinguishing features. So when we say like there's risk or there's cost, like that actually can be unpacked in a very specific way. We say, okay, well, is there an issue of credibility? Right? Am I worried that if I adopt this and it doesn't work, that's going to be a problem because it's a medical procedure. And if I get this medical procedure, I'm facing a health risk or a potentially an existential risk if the procedure doesn't work. That's a case where it's not just like hearing about it that's going to make you want it. You really need, you know, strong confirmation this is a smart mm-hmm. thing to do. A different kind of issue at stake with complex contagions is legitimacy. It may not be the case that you're worried about something being true or false or effective or ineffective as much as that it's accepted by the people around you. The influencer who's sort of spreading it may not be in your organization or may not be someone who works in your group. And so if you wind up adopting something and everyone else in your group that you work with every day doesn't, then you're sort of faced with that social conflict. And there's a big professional risk, but also a personal social risk of doing something that's sort of seen as sort of deviant within the sort of norms of your community. Mm-hmm. And so you're paying attention to everyone in your group and they're playing this kind of outsized role in like your evaluation of whether that's the right thing for you to do. And so in that process, the people who are most relevant aren't the celebrities. People who are most relevant are just the people you work with every day. And that's what I mean by coordination playing this like really almost invisible role, but like dominant role in how you know we evaluate the innovations we should adopt and the strategies we should use. And so I would say that when we think about these issues like credibility and legitimacy, that gives us a way of kind of disentangling the simple contagions from the complex contagions. If we say, look, there are no issues of coordination There are no issues of credibility, no issues of legitimacy. I can just buy a Nike shirt and wear it and no one's going to notice. No one's going to care. No, it just doesn't interact at all with these factors. Then it's probably a simple contagion. But as soon as there's an issue of legitimacy or social risk or potentially, you know, a very expensive product. So the, the risk of spending a lot of money for something that's ineffective and the issue of credibility, or of course, the issue of just needing to coordinate with other people, that when those things show up, we're typically dealing with a complex contagion, which means that the influencer is not going to be the right strategy. So it makes me wonder 
as leaders, to leaders in any kind of an organization, people are really paying attention to them. They're paying attention to their behavior, right? And so they actually are a really powerful influencer in the truest sense, aren't they? And so what I'm really asking you is, based on what you've learned, should leaders really be paying a lot of attention to the signals that they're giving people? Yeah, so that's absolutely right, that there is this influence within organizations from leaders. And this is where the kind of the tie from the book goes from this initial idea of where influencers are ineffective to the final ideas that I talk about, which is where they are effective and sometimes how dangerous that can be. And this really, the issue of bias plays a kind of preeminent role in our understanding of when influencers are actually influential. And typically, when we think about the kinds of ideas that are spreading, we can break them up into simple and complex contagions. And we can say, look, ideas that are familiar, that reinforce kind of our existing beliefs and often our existing biases tend to be simple contagions. And ideas that challenge our norms and our expectations and our sort of ways of thinking tend to be complex contagions. And so the question is, well, which ideas spread most effectively from these influencers? And it turns out they're simple contagions, right? So influencers are very effective at kind of reinforcing the strategies and ideas that people are already familiar with. And so that means that communities that tend to organize in a hierarchical way tend to kind of reinforce the existing biases in the community. And one of the questions that I really have been thinking about most recently, and I sort of, you know, spend a lot of time towards the the second half of the book talking about this, is when there's bias in people's judgment, how do these sort of network processes help us not just spread something, but spread a kind of change that will overcome people's existing bias and let them sort of see the information in the world afresh. And that's a really challenging issue because we find this obviously in political circles with some of the most heated debates of the day, but also in well-trod organizational circles like in medicine and in finance, where the kind of existing beliefs and biases are just constantly reinforced through these hierarchical networks. And it turns out that if you sort of change the connectedness of a population, and this is something that in organizations you can do really effectively, you can like systematically change the way people are looking at the information. And this is very powerful because our theory for several hundred years had been, look, the reason people make bad decisions is that they're just not informed. And if we just gave everyone the information, everyone would make the same smart decision. And that is completely false, mm-hmm. right? It's just been shown over and over again. You can give everyone the same information and group one will make one decision and group two will, will make a very different decision, even though they have the same information in front of them. And you can even ask them, what does this information say? And group one will say, oh, it says one thing. And group two will say, oh, no, this information says the opposite. Even when that information in some of the studies we've run, like looking at Democrats or Republicans, we'd like give them the exact same data with the exact same curve. It's a very simple graph. And they come up with opposite interpretations of what the graph is saying. And so the question is, like, is there a learning process that can happen that allows people to figure out what the data are actually saying and what decision they should make? And it turns out that when you have a very centralized network with an influence at the top talking to lots of people, those networks tend to be fairly biased and actually tend to take even small biases and amplify them because the person at the center, the influencer, is doing such an outsized role in kind of managing the flow of information between people. But when you sort of increase the number of conversations people are having on the side, which is to say that the sort of fairness of a network, you know, you sort of reduce the connectedness of the influencer and increase the conversations among people who are less connected, 
there's like this phenomenal social learning process that takes place. And one of the responses I think you might have is, well, could you ever (laughs) really do this? I mean, there's a lot of money at stake and there's a lot of power at stake. And so how would you do this? And there's a couple of examples I talk about, you know, in the book, some of the studies that we ran that I ran with the Philadelphia 76ers when they're making scouting decisions, which is also typically kind of a hierarchical decision-making process, but also with President Obama trying to evaluate new policies and also noticing that he and his advisors at the center of the room and there's all these staffers lining like the periphery that are kind of in the dark corners of the room and they're not part of the conversation, but they have all this information that's not distilled effectively into the briefs. And so the question is, how do you bring that into the conversation? And his conclusion was, look, leaders can be really intentional about this. They can specifically talk and call on those people who aren't supposed to talk in these meetings to contribute to the conversation and basically change the learning structure so that people can learn from each other and that the network can be a little bit more equal, a little bit more egalitarian. And as a result of that, that the influencer is different. What the influencer is really doing in that situation is teaching people how to learn from their social networks rather than you know giving them a particular fact or a particular piece of guidance. After I read that, I actually went online and looked for a picture of Obama's cabinet meetings. And sure enough, you're all these <laughs> cabinet members, senior people, right? With supposedly right. all the information. And then you've got the room filled. And most of these people are standing. It's really yep, interesting. They're all standing right? on the sides, yeah. yeah. It's a status thing for sure. But it's understandable. I mean, it's a cabinet meeting, but they bring the experts in. But the insight that Obama had was, let's tap into these people. But he's also tapping into these people I'm guessing, as a means to influencing the people in the room to think differently. Exactly. Because he knows they've got data that's going to support what he wants, right? He's not just randomly asking people. He's asking people to give information that he probably already has. Is that true? Like, he's being clever about it. Well, I don't think he's being that strategic. I don't think he knows that this particular staffer looked at this particular problem, and so he's calling on them because there are so many staffers, and he's got this massive network of people that he's aware of. It's not so much that as much as I think he's also trying to train his senior leadership to be a little bit more intentional themselves about involving those sort of people who are touching the data in the conversation. And that's where I think leaders can be really powerful is in helping reorient the role of the network in people's decision making, because the default model is the hierarchical model. So the person at the top starts to kind of tap other parts in the periphery of the network. It sort of encourages people to sort of start thinking about doing that, too. And I think that's one of the sort of the more powerful intuitions that comes out of his strategy. Going back to something that you were saying earlier, we were talking about finance and you've got marketing, you have sales, and you're uniting those early adopters to whatever change it is that you're trying to implement. And so it's not just, well, marketing is doing this change or sales is doing this change. Now you've got it and people are hearing it in different parts of the organization. And so it's bubbling up. And you gave this example in the book about Twitter and how we think somebody like an Oprah Winfrey blessed it. You know, one day she found it and said, hey, everybody, follow my lead and go on Twitter. But the truth was that Twitter had become something already. And she saw that it was already something and then gave it her blessing. And the way that Twitter was actually created was by virtue of the fact that the common denominators of people that were using it had either technology backgrounds 
i.e. involved in the creation of this, and or that they were educated in, you know, many of the East Coast organizations, you know, schools in, in Massachusetts, you know, the home of more colleges than any other state in the United States. So, <laughs> right? So they, right. so now they're communicating back and forth, and that's what built it. So can you tell us a little bit more about that and then use it as an illustration of everything we've been talking about? Yeah, it's a great example because the Oprah effect is something we often talk about, right? She advertises something and it becomes really popular. And again, for simple contagions, that's absolutely true. And then we make the inference that that would also work for something like Twitter. And so what people look at is they say, well, you know, January, February, Twitter has like 8 million users. And then Oprah adopts in April. And then after April, Twitter has like 28 million users. I'm like, wow, look what Oprah did for Twitter. And this is where, again, this like this new science is really useful because just by looking at that history, you try to make a causal inference. And every, we all do. We're all running around proto-social scientists trying to figure out what the world is and how it works. And so the science here is useful because you can see that basically right towards the end of January, Twitter starts to hit this kind of critical mass point in this growth dynamic where it grew in the Bay Area and then spread through a series of overlapping ties between like the schools and the graduates from the schools and, you know, in the Bay Area and, and in Massachusetts. And there's a lot of social and technical interest and expertise that links those two communities. And so those ideas spread to Massachusetts and then kind of took off and blew in there and then spread from there to, to Seattle. And what you see is this friendship network really growing this thing. And then it starts to just kind of critical mass around the country in several places. And then it generates basically what is like known as exponential or hyper exponential growth, which is just, I guess we refer to it as the hockey stick, but it's just like this explosion. And this is where like the steepest part of the curve is in terms of just like the rate of growth is phenomenal for Twitter, like through February and March. And then towards the end of that curve is where Oprah adopts in April, right? So you've got this like month after month, just explosive growth in the technology, and it becomes so well-known, attractive, and kind of exciting that someone like Oprah thinks, hey, I should be part of this too, and then adopts. And then afterwards, of course, more and more people are adopting. But interestingly, after Oprah's adoption is when the growth curve actually starts to slow down. Of course, it keeps increasing, but the rate is lower. And so the inference we typically make is a kind of a before-after inference. But the real question isn't, geez, if you get Oprah, you know, how can I get Oprah so that my product will take off? It's how did Twitter grow so fast and, you know, build its infrastructure so effectively that Oprah took notice and was like, this thing is huge. Because once people like Oprah start noticing, it means you're taking over anyway, right? You're growing so big so fast that it's going to become an international phenomenon. And the celebrities just want to be part of that thing. So the real question is, what are those sort of growth dynamics? And that's where the, the story of Wide Bridges we were talking about earlier really becomes like the key to the story. It's this sort of critical mass that grows basically around the sort of outskirts of the network among regular people and then winds up kind of taking over the center. And that's where the Oprahs of the world live. And we've seen this with so many other phenomena. We've seen the Ice Bucket Challenge was a similar kind of thing. Facebook's growth was a similar kind of thing. So with Skype's growth, it's like every single time we look at one of those these technological phenomena, it has the same kind of growth process where it sort of expands through this this sort of periphery of wide bridges and then kind of takes over the center afterwards. 
Damon, I want to take a quick break. And we have a tradition on the podcast where we ask our guests a few quick answer questions that we hope will give us an even greater understanding of who you are as a person, what's influenced you and your life philosophy, that kind of stuff. So we call it the heartbeat round because we want you to answer each question cleverly in a heartbeat. Are you game? Yes, I'll try to keep up with the cleverly part. All right, right, very good. Social network you use most? Uh, Certainly my colleagues' networks, yeah. What does that mean? Oh, my my network of colleagues that I have at my university and throughout my discipline is the network. Oh, I was thinking it in terms of Twitter, Facebook, social media. you know. Yeah. So I'm not a huge social media user. <laughs> really? I would say um, if I were to talk about, I would say uh, probably Facebook and, and Instagram. Personal change you found hard to make? Switching diets. Yeah, very challenging. One book you wish everyone in the world would read? I was stuck on this one. I felt like, on the one hand, Hume's Inquiry, which is a philosophy book from the you know, Renaissance, but it's, to my mind, one of the best introductions into like the modern society we live in because his ideas have been so formative. Also, Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own is a really good book, too. So what was the name of the first one? Uh, Hume's Inquiry Concerning Human Understanding. It's a philosophy book, but it's it's also very accessible and just as I said, it shows up everywhere in our lives. <laughs> it's a very, very influential book. Interesting. A prediction about the future you're pretty certain will come true. Uh, the segmentation of social media by social experience. So right now we think about these technologies as technologies, but ultimately I think what we're going to see is the technology is going to become really flat and, and similar. And what's going to wind up happening is that the social experience offered by the technology is going to become increasingly distinct. Trait you admire most in other people. Oh, compassion for sure place away from Philadelphia you'd like to live one day? Well, Vermont had always been a dream and we're here in Vermont now, so that's good. (laughs) (laughs) A lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life? To delegate. You know, I did a lot myself and uh, I think, you know, I might've gotten more done if I'd been able to delegate sooner. Magazine or newspaper you never miss reading? Well, so unfortunately, the science is the one I'm going to have to answer. I know that's not something everyone reads, but it's definitely where most of my colleagues publish and it's where I get most of my betting ideas. Most valuable insight you gain while writing your book? That stories have this incredibly deep scientific value that I hadn't really appreciated before. But after writing the book, I feel like I have a better understanding of the science by virtue of getting into the details of these narratives. CEO you admire for their ability to swiftly embrace change? Someone who stands out for me is James Burke of Johnson & Johnson and his response to like the Tylenol poisoning in the 80s. I mm. still think that's a really just impressive example of like decisiveness and also, you know, really ethical decision making. Skill improvement you're working on right now. My social media skills, trying to get up to speak <laughs> uh, being more involved in social media. Yeah. And a piece of advice that later proved invaluable to you. So it may not have been valuable at the moment, but you found it invaluable later on. When I got my first job, my sister said, you know, let your career evolve because I was really excited. I'd helped to kind of create this job and convince them to create the position for me. And I was very fixated on what I was going to be doing. And the, the advice was that, you know, it may change over time, the role and what you're doing and how it fits into the organization and just sort of let that happen. I mean, it was really good advice. That's very insightful. Well, thank you for going through this with me. Thanks. It was fun. Okay. So let's tie all of this up now. You have this quote in the book, which is, by the way, something that 
it's Max Planck's quote, but it's something that I've thought about a million <laughs> times, right? That there's so much resistance in business to bringing heart into leadership. And Max Planck's quote was something along the lines of that the way that real change happens is that the current leadership has to die <laughs> and that the next generation already <laughs> embraced the idea and they just implement it like it's nothing nothing new, right? It's just their second nature. I debated about whether to include that quote in the book. <laughs> No, it's 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 true, right? I mean, we know it's true. So the point I'm trying to make is, I don't want all of this change to happen after I'm gone. So the whole time I'm reading your book, I'm thinking this was like written for me and for my audience, for people who are interested in embracing a different way of managing people, but are up against resistance for any many reasons, and so. With all of us trying to create more caring and compassionate leadership at a time when it's not really embraced, I'd love for you to, you know, before we go here, really pin it down. So take all the magnificent work that you've done. And I have four questions for you. I'm going to give them all four to you and you can just go with it the way you want. How can we influence more managers around the world to adapt these ideas and put them into practice? How can we prove the effectiveness of the new methods within organization as a way of tipping the behavior for the same managers we're trying to influence? How can we make this successful now in light of the Max Planck quote? And in your words, how do you like the match that will get the initiative really going? Yeah, those are the four right questions to ask. And I want to say about the Max Planck quote, um, the reason I put it in there was largely because when we talk about this idea of a paradigm shift, it's with reference to this notion about scientific change. And this is often the case. And I'm talking there, the Max Planck quote specifically is about the change from moving from the Newtonian and then ultimately the Einsteinian framework to quantum mechanics, which Einstein, as we all know, like famously resisted as well. And it's interesting to know that not all scientific change requires the generation to die off. There's some paradigm shifts that actually do happen within a generation, like the shift from Newtonian mechanics to relativity, which actually happened you know, relatively quickly. But the good thing about social change is that we've seen time and time again that norms really can change within our lifetime. And we've seen this with like the role of women in the workplace, with the support for marriage equality, and even with Black Lives Matter, these things have actually changed dramatically over the course of, you know, in some case decades, but in another case, like much faster periods of time. And so it gives us this kind of hope that people are actually fairly flexible. And so to answer then what we do and how we think about it, how can we influence managers? The most important thing I think is this point we were just talking about, you know, with regard to sort of Obama and the meetings is that if we can make the sort of the networks of influence a little bit more egalitarian, it allows these ideas to like take hold much more effectively because you can think of when there's a sort of a central influencer and the network is very centralized like that, the influencer's opinion can actually act as kind of a blockade, as like a very strong pushback that maintains the status quo. And so the more kind of egalitarian the networks are, the easier it is for sort of ideas that are maybe a little contentious or, or push against the status quo to kind of take hold and gain support. And then that goes to the central question is like, how can we prove the effectiveness of a new idea? And we've learned this a lot, like, for example, with the movement to increase equal pay and to change to gender roles in organizations and also reduce, obviously, sexual harassment, and discrimination, that coordination is essential, that the people who are trying to initiate change need to coordinate with each other. But, and this goes to the point that we were talking before about the kind of social clusters that initiate change, they can't just be like entirely internally focused, right? Contact matters. 
also. So they need to have these kind of bridges to other parts of the organization, other groups who aren't necessarily part of this initiative at the outset. So it's both coordination and contact, that balance that is sort of essential for initiating these kinds of change processes. And then when we sort of ask this question about <laughs> how this change ultimately takes place and how over the course, you know, within our lifetime and presumably, you know, ideally just within a few years, we can see change. We need to realize that the core issue, and this is something I really feel like is one of the core points in the book, is that we often focus on the longstanding nature of traditions and the difficulty overturning the things that are well-established. You can think of like handshakes and fist bumps as a great example in business of something that's you know become a kind of etiquette tension because we all shake hands, but now fist bumps are sort of getting traction, but now that you know they're losing traction, so how do we make change? What really initiates change is the need to coordinate and people's need to coordinate with, with each other if you get sort of enough of a critical mass with enough contact to the rest of the sort of organization, then even the people who love tradition will need to coordinate with this sort of new idea, this new initiative in order to successfully do their jobs. And that's one of the really powerful things about changes in organizations is that need to coordinate looks like it's holding everything in place, but it's also the secret to initiating a change process. And when you ask, you know, how do I then light the match? The strategy here is what I call the snowball strategy, which is, you know, we can look at lots of studies that have like tried holding different initiative strategies side by side. There's one I talk about in the book in Malawi, where like they actually did an experiment testing my theory with 200 villages just to see whether they could sort of implement an innovation across, you know, hundreds of different farmers. And they tried the influencer strategy and they tried the kind of viral approach. And then they tried this kind of complex contagion snowball strategy. And it was just phenomenally effective in changing the ways that people sort of understood the available technologies and their willingness to ultimately adopt them. What did they do? I actually don't remember this from the book. So tell me what they did. Oh, okay. Yeah, in the Malawi study, what they did was they took four years and they collected all the social network data in the country of Malawi. <laughs> phenomenal study. And it was specifically for testing my theory. And then 200 villages, so 50 villages were sort of control villages, and they, 50 villages used the kind of influencer strategy where they incentivized an influencer to like tell everyone to use this new farming technique. In 50 of the villages, they used the kind of viral strategy where they kind of randomly picked farmers to adopt the new technique and see if it would spread. And in 50 of the villages, they used this sort of snowball or complex contagion strategy where they clustered the innovators together in the same part of the network, which again, seems like inefficient because it means your innovation gets less exposure in the village because it's just these kind of people who know each other who are doing it. And then they would come back year after year for the subsequent three years and see which of the villages seemed to have greater, first of all, greater knowledge about this new farming technique and second of all, more uptake. And it was head and shoulders. There was like a 300% increase in the snowball villages where you saw that the reinforcement among the innovators, among the sort of change agents, were able to support each other. So neither of them kind of gave up on the innovation, but also that their coordination helped to sort of allow other neighbors to approach them and feel more comfortable. There was some social confirmation of this idea and they would come look at the farm and see the new technique and then maybe try it themselves. And then now that person would be part of the group of adopters and then they mm-hmm. would help to encourage other people. And it turns out that every major story of innovation that we look at has this characteristic, even in the US, one of the most successful innovations in U.S. history in the 20th century 
has this characteristic of initially being massively resisted in marketing and viral approaches being totally ineffective for years. And then, you know, just having a small group of farmers try it and having it spread across the U.S. and become, you know, the dominant method for all farmers. So that's very well punctuated. And one final question I have related to that is, so if I'm trying to create change within my organization and I'm smart enough to understand that I'm going to build a network of people who are like-minded, want to support this, and they're diverse with respect to where they are in the organization, right? So marketing and sales and engineering. But I'm also going to adopt the Obama strategy, which is that it's not just going to be managers in those three departments, if you will, for a simplistic example, but I'm going to pick ordinary people the people that are excited about this idea, right? So it's all comers. It's not just managers from the different departments that we're trying to influence change on. Am I right or wrong? No, you're right. There's some key issues that come up depending on the organizational structure, like how empowered do people feel? And to what extent does giving people greater voice in this conversation change their buy-in in this process? We often find that middle managers are important people to get because mm. we're often stuck between like they're on the ground, but they're also not in like senior leadership positions. And so having the kind of combination of different sort of levels of people within those groups is actually really effective as well. That's awesome. Damon, on behalf of my audience, thank you so very much for joining us. Fascinating work, really off the normal line of work that we talk about here. But really, when I read your book, I thought it's absolutely essential that we talk about this because it really does provide a roadmap for what we're all trying to accomplish. And, you know, life is hard, change is hard. And if we have new tools and insights to make it more effective, we have you to thank. So thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. My pleasure. It's been a fun conversation. Before we go, I want to share a quick story. I recently gave a keynote speech at Microsoft and Training Magazine's Learning Conference, and someone wrote me afterwards to say that she believed COVID has brought us to the tipping point where leaders and organizations must change. They must learn to lead from the heart or they now will fail. While I nodded in agreement when I read this, it still requires courageous managers to show everyone else the way. So not only do I hope you'll be the light for others to see, I hope you'll take some of Damon's ideas and help accelerate the revolution all of us are wanting to see. More than anything, I want to thank you for sharing our podcast with your friends, colleagues, and employees. As I've said several times here before, a growing audience is the only sign we have that we're doing good work. And so we're relying on you for that important report card. As always, I want to thank my very talented team, Ken Boynton, Carrie Finnessy, Susan DeRoche, Randy Yant, and my sound engineer and producer, Eric Oz. And I leave you with my constant reminder. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley, signing off for now. Mm-hmm.